It's a tremendous honor for me to be here today with you. Let me begin with a word of prayer. Let's open up in the communicating with our God. Dear God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we invite you to this place of worship, this chapel service. We thank you, God, for each person here and their stories, the ways that you have encountered them and they have encountered you. Father, we ask that this would not just be another time in your word, but that you would do something in us, transform us, change us, encourage us, help us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. May you alone receive all of the glory, honor, and praise. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois, in the United States. I was the oldest of three boys, and in my family, I was the one who could not do math. I don't know if you've ever hung around Asians before, but there's a stereotype that exists that all Asians are good at math. I want you to leave with a spiritual lesson today, and it's this. I want you to turn to your neighbor and tell them, not all Asians are good at math. Not all Asians are good at math. And as I struggled my way through arithmetic and geometry and trigonometry and calculus and all the other different types of math, I often admired those who were good at math. And in the United States, we have to take entrance exams for college called the SAT or the ACT. And if you were picturing in your mind this stellar student who was getting a perfect score on that exam, that was not me. So what do you do in life as an Asian person if you're not good at math? I know you were asking that question yourself. <laughs> so I went to college. I, I went to college not far uh, from Canada, actually. I went to college at Carleton College in Minnesota, uh, which is not too far from Canada, and I didn't know what to do with my life. Wasn't sure what to study, and eventually I met this wonderful professor of history and decided to major in medieval European history. So I have a large extended family in Chicago, about 70 uh, relatives, and they would every Thanksgiving go to my parents' home for Thanksgiving meal. And my cousins are the stereotype of an Asian person. I've got a computer scientist in my family, a medical doctor, an actuary, uh, an engineer. And they asked me when I came home from college for Thanksgiving, what are you going to study? 
And they expected me to say something math and science related. And I said to them, I'm going to study history. And then they turned their heads like this. (laughs) And almost with a sense of shame, looked at me and asked me, what are you going to do with that? And I said, I'm going to read a lot of books. (laughs) And one of the books I came upon was Thomas More's Utopia, written in the 1500s. It's the story of a fictitious place, this utopia, this perfect place where there's a society where people could share and be together. And uh, I'm sorry if there there are any attorneys in the room, but they didn't need lawyers because people tried to obey the law and follow the law. And they actually had storehouses where you could come and just take what you needed. You didn't have to lock your doors because you trusted people not to break in and steal your stuff. But as you know, Utopia is a fictitious place post-Eden. We don't live in Utopia. The United States is not Utopia. And I'm sorry to say Canada is not Utopia. In many places in the world. But they are not a Utopia. But as we have just read here in this passage in Acts chapter 2, We are reminded of what the early church was like. And in many ways, if I could picture myself living in a perfect time period, it would be this time period where the early church was just beginning. This time after Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit infuses the Jewish people to to know and to speak God's word. And we see here that in verse 41... Peter preaches his message. And it says that they were cut to the heart. And in that moment, 3,000 Jewish people confessed, repented, and were baptized. So what do you do with 3,000 converts? There are probably 200 plus people here in this room. Imagine 3,000 plus Converts come to know the Lord. What would you do with them? How would you interact with them? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Let's take a look and see. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 41. Those who accepted his message, Peter's message, were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, here's the question what did they do? Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And would you read with me that last line? And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's a lot, isn't it, to take in? It sounds like a utopia, perfect place. And I wonder, as you go to church on Sunday, do you feel like you are part of a perfect place? Probably not. 
We have mixed emotions when we go to church, don't we? We wonder if so-and-so will be there. That person who bothers us. When we see them, we dart to the bathroom. That kind of person. Sometimes we don't feel like worshiping God. Sometimes we don't even feel like preaching. And I would imagine most of us wonder, what am I really doing here? I'm not here. I didn't fly to Toronto to give any kind of church growth advice. That's not the point. I'm not expecting all of us to gain 3,000 new converts. But what does God's word tell us to do as a church? And maybe you're going through a spiritual malaise and you don't know what you've been doing for the last few months or maybe even years. Your spiritual life has really grown, uh, grown cold and you're, you're feeling discouraged in the Christian life. Maybe we can remind ourselves of what the early church aspired to do and to be. First, it tells us in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Really, in the Greek, we have two main things that we're looking at, the apostles' teaching and fellowship. So as we think about devoting ourselves to something, the question is, what do you and I devote ourselves to? What are you devoted to? What do you give allegiance to in your life? What are you really making a priority? Researchers tell us that we need to spend at least 10,000 hours in something to become good at it. That's the kind of devotion we're talking about. If I were to ask you, what do you spend 10,000 hours on, what would it be? The apostles devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This early church devoted themselves to God's word. And that seems like the Sunday school answer, right? Other than Jesus, the, the right answer is, yes, the Bible. But am I devoted to it? Can I say I've spent 10,000 hours in God's word? The early church understood that this teaching that was probably Moses' teaching, that also Jesus talked about and described as he, as he lived among the disciples and taught them God's word. Luke 24 reminds us on that road to Emmaus that God's fulfillment of scripture is found in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, everything that the Bible talked about was about me. And so these early Worshippers, these early Christians understood that Moses, the teachings of Moses and the law and all that is good. But now they saw through new lenses. It's like when I was eight years old and got my first pair of glasses. I didn't know that the world was blurry. But when I put on my first pair of glasses, I saw clearly for the first time in a long time. That's how the disciples felt about God's word. As Jesus said to them, the fulfillment of scripture is in me. Do we devote ourselves, like the early church, to the apostles' teaching? When I was a pastor in Colorado, I went to a mission trip in China. And I was told that I was supposed to teach a Bible study lesson to this second generation, this new generation of Christians um, at this 
uh, place that I went to in China. And so I prepared a Bible study for my, as if I was preparing for my own church. And for my church, after about 30 minutes of any Bible study, people would start to get a little not, not sure what to do with themselves, you know, and they would, they would get fidgety. And by about 45 minutes, people ask me, hey, Matt, can I go use the, re- go use the restroom? And then they never come back. <laughs> so in my mind, I thought surely about two hours worth of material would be plenty to uh, teach uh, for the second generation of Christians in China. And so as I began to teach, I, I taught them from the book of Nehemiah, and I really wanted to encourage them as a community. How can you become a stronger Christian community and have witness? At about 45 minutes, I started feeling a little antsy, and I asked them, may I use the restroom? <laughs> and I still remember, in one united voice, they all said, sit down. You've only just begun. And for the next eight hours, For several days in a row, we went through the Word of God, book by book, as I was trying to teach them what the Word of God said. And there was a hunger, a passion, a devotion, a longing for God's Word in their souls that put me to shame, even as a pastor from North America. This isn't a message to shame us. It's a call, a reminder Are we devoted to the Word of God? Are we devoted to the Apostles' teaching? Do we meditate and spend time focusing on God's Word? Is, is, like the psalmist says, is God's Word our delight? Do we delight in it? Do we meditate upon it? Is it sweeter than honey for us? How do you feel about God's Word? The early church devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching. Secondly, they devoted themselves to fellowship and the, you can put in brackets, breaking of bread and prayer. When you think of the word fellowship or koinonia, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Food. Thank you. That was the magic answer I was looking for. Food. When you think of fellowship, you think of food. And at my church in Colorado, we had a smaller church where I started and every Sunday, we would have one family bring meals, for a meal, lunch meal for the entire church. And we would have sign up and one family would be assigned to bring food. And every week, it was a wonderful time of sharing in food and fellowship. So in my mind, koinonia means fellowship. And that is often the way I take it. And here we see in a similar way that the, they were devoted to the breaking of bread which we believe is the, word, uh, the communion, the Eucharist, uh, the time of celebrating around the Lord's table and dedicating themselves to prayer. Now, you're going to go out after this chapel, and I know some of you are thinking already, yeah, you're talking about food. I want to go have some food. Uh, but think about food. Food brings commonality to us because we all eat. And the Lord's table reminds us that no matter what you look like, No matter what you believe in terms of secondary issues, we are all one in Jesus Christ. Amen? So if you look around the the room and see this wonderful sea of beautiful faces, this person is united to you in Christ. We are one in 
Christ. And so the breaking of bread was a reminder that Jesus would come back. And in the meantime, Jesus reminded us to spend time eating together. Remember my body that was broken and shed, the blood that was shed. But not only that, they devoted themselves to prayer. The basics of the Christian life and how easily they escape me. Reading the word of God, devoting myself to that. Being in community with fellow believers in Christ, brothers and sisters, and prayer. Do we devote ourselves to prayer? At Gordon-Conwell, where I teach in our first preaching class, we do talk a little bit about uh, the character of preaching, the character of preachers. But in that very first class, what I have students do is we get on our knees if they're able, and we spend 10 to 15 minutes at the final part of the class praying together. Because preaching cannot be done apart from prayer. Pastoral ministry cannot be done apart from prayer. But I'm not just talking about the service-oriented parts of ministry. I cannot be a Christian without prayer. Do you believe that today? As God's word reminds us, will you devote yourselves to the apostles' teaching? To the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer? I still remember when I was candidating for my first church, and some of you are probably thinking about candidating for a church. And I was standing on the corner in California in this uh, very large church, and I was standing uh, with, with the associate pastors on the curb. And so you can imagine me standing here waiting for our car to come. And the associate pastor turned and looked at me, and you, whenever someone does this, you feel very uncomfortable. And then he asked me, so Matt, how many hours a day do you pray? I wish I could give you a holy answer, but I got mad. Hours? I think in terms of minutes. I didn't say that to him, but that's what I was thinking in my head. Hours? I think in terms of minutes. And as we think about that question, that wasn't the pastor asking me, evaluating me as a potential candidate for being a pastor at his church. That was God reminding me, Matt, how much do you love me? If you love me, wouldn't you want to commune with me? Won't you devote yourself to prayer and being in communion with the triune God? They devoted themselves to these things. So what happens when you devote yourself to these things? It says in verse 43, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And here, this is where we get a little bit uncomfortable, don't we? As 21st century North American Christians, we wonder, can this truly be happening? Can this truly happen today? All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. I want to go to this church, don't you? This is the church I want to be a part of. 
A church where people are making themselves uncomfortable so that other people can see the glory of God manifested through the blood of Jesus Christ, the body that was broken for us. This is a, is a tangible expression of the apostles' teaching, being devoted to that, being devoted to the breaking of bread, being devoted to fellowship and to prayer. All of this is a culmination of the very fact that they focused on these things and they became selfless. When you and I focus on God's word and prayer and fellowship and the communion table, it forces us to become selfless. And by nature, I am selfish. I don't know about you. I'm probably the only one in the room. I am selfish. All I care about is me. What I'm going to do today. What I'm going to do for God. I am selfish. And maybe you are too. Because that is our very nature. We are selfish beings. But God says here that when you focus on the right things, everyone was filled with awe. Why? Because they were able to do supernatural things because of the supernatural power, because of the Pentecost that the Holy Spirit had finally come. John 14's promise that Jesus gave to his disciples had physically come. The Spirit had come to them and it transformed their lives as they devoted themselves to these things. And here it says they sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need, and they continued to meet daily together. And people became beautiful in their eyes rather than a nuisance in their eyes. I had a church member who was very peculiar, and I couldn't figure her out. My wife and I had Bible studies that met on different nights. And I, I met with men on one night and women came over the next night. And whenever this individual came to our home, we didn't know where she was sometimes because she would often be in our kids' room playing with the toys by herself. Sometimes she would come into the kitchen and just start dancing around. And we just thought she was weird. And every day I would think about it whenever she came and why are you so weird? I would think to myself. Do you have anyone like that in your life? Someone you just can't figure out? Someone who's weird? And as I got to know her story, as I sat down with her one day, I found out that at a very young age, her parents died in a car accident. And she had basically taken care of herself her entire life. And in psychological terms, she was stuck in that early age development. Even though she was physically an adult and had her own job and everything, she was still in that mindset of being a kid because she never grew out of it because of what happened to her, the tragedy that had struck her life. And when I understood her story... Something happened in me where she wasn't a nuisance and she wasn't peculiar and she wasn't weird. She was a sister in Christ who had gone through devastating brokenness. 
And I can tell you that she, on her own, had studied Greek and Hebrew. And she knew Greek and Hebrew better than me. And sometimes after church, she would say, I don't really agree with that part of your interpretation. And I think the Greek meant this. I think the author meant this in this particular case. And it never bothered me when she did that. After I knew her story. Before I knew her story, it really was bothersome. (laughs) But when you get to know people, we're all the same. We all have brokenness. We all have pain. We all have suffering. And here... It's manifested. The selflessness is manifested, is it not? So they continue to meet together and everyone continue to, to be together, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Do you love the people that you're with at church? And it says here that as they were selfless, they became contagious. And in that last part of the verse, it says, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I don't know about you, but I want to become a contagious Christian. Do you? Can I, can I see a show of hands? Do you want to become a, or, or do you want to be, or maybe you already are? Are you a contagious Christian? When people see you, do you radiate Jesus Christ from your face? Sometimes. Sometimes not. But as we devote ourselves to what the Bible teaches, and as we become selfless, as we become people who care about the needs of others and are sensitive and show empathy, what happens? We become contagious. That comfort that I seek and long for slowly dissipates as I am infused with the Holy Spirit and the power that God brings to the life of the Christian. I want some of that. Do you? I want to be contagious. And here it says, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And again, this is not about church growth. God has a plan for Tyndale. God has a plan for your local churches. So that when you remind your churches of this truth in Acts 2, 41 to 47, you will become contagious in your Christian life. I just want to close with one final illustration. My church had a number of professionals and one of them was a doctor. And he was a physician, and he used to give me parenting advice when I was a little, uh, when my kids were little. And I still remember him telling me a story of where when his kids got sick, he would take the spoon of one kid who was sick and put it in his mouth, and then he would take it out, and immediately he would take it and put it in the, uh, the mouth of his daughter, who was not sick. And this was just very peculiar to me. So I kept looking at him. You're a physician and you're perpetuating illness? I didn't say that, but I was thinking that in my head. And he said, trust me. Trust me on this one. Because whether it's in one day, one week, three weeks, six weeks, I promise you that other kid will get sick. So why would I prolong my suffering? Get it over with. Get it over with. Take the spoon and shove it in the kid's mouth. Because illness is contagious. I'm not trying to give you parenting advice today. 
But if we take this and spin it positively, let's think about the Christian life. If I am contagious, if I am filled with Jesus Christ, if I am filled with the Holy Spirit, I will be contagious. Because other people will see it. And they will wonder, why are you so different? Why don't you seek comfort in this life? Why are you so different? Why do you look like that person called Jesus? My prayer for you, dear Tyndale, and for all those who are here for the preaching conference, is that you and I will be contagious Christians. Because Christians are contagious when they're selfless. Will you say that word selfless with me? Selfless. 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 Let it roll off your tongue. Selfless. Selfless. I want to be selfless like Jesus. My prayer for you and I is that we will be contagious to the glory of God. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this time and thank you for this reminder from your word. And I don't know how my brothers and sisters are doing in this room today, but we ask for a fresh dose of your Holy Spirit to come and infuse our lives that Jesus would shine through us and that we would truly look like him in every part of our lives so that other people will see and praise you. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.